In the year 1838, a man by the name of William Miller published a book entitled Evidence from Scripture and History of the Second Coming of Christ about the year 1843. It was a, exactly what it sounds like. It was a book predicting that Jesus would return in the year 1843. Uh, William Miller, no relation, by the way. William Miller had, <laughs> had worked out a formula from some different passages of the, book of, the, of the book of Daniel, and he'd used some dates from biblical events provided by Bishop James Usher, and he predicted that Jesus would return about the year 1843. Later on, it became more specifically dated to March of 1844. It was really popular uh, back in those days, back in 1838-39. It was very popular, 50,000 people took Miller and his book seriously and prepared for Jesus' return in March of 1844. When Jesus didn't return, the date was adjusted by about six months to October 22nd, 1844. But once again, Jesus didn't return, and history rolled on. William Miller wasn't the first, and he certainly isn't the last person to attempt predicting the second coming of Jesus and the end of history. Charles Taze Russell is the founder of what is known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. He predicted that Jesus returned in 1874, and when he didn't, he had to adjust to 1914. And then when he didn't, he had to adjust to 1917. And there was a man who wrote a book in the late 80s entitled 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. He wrote four more copies with four different titles about why Jesus would return in specific times. Back in September of 2017, David Mead, a, a so-called Christian numerologist, and, and by the way, just as a side, there is no such thing as a Christian numerologist, he predicted that the world would end on September 23, 2017. Mead used codes that he found from in the Bible. He mined them out of the Bible. He used planetary alignments. He used something referred to as a date marker from the pyramids in Giza, Egypt. He proclaimed the world would end as Nibiru, also called Planet X, would collide with Earth. Garnering attention in a variety of news sources, Mead's theory and date created an expectation of the end of the world and of Jesus' return. Spoiler alert, he didn't, and it didn't. William Mead wasn't the first, or William Miller wasn't the first, and David Mead won't be the last to attempt to provide a specific date for Jesus' return. But what do we do with these things? You know, we live in a really interconnected world with social media and, and the, the, that thing called the internet uh, and, and news broadcasts, and uh, these things get reported all over the place. What are we supposed to do with them when we see them? How are we supposed to think about these end times and these expectations for Jesus' return? Well, I would submit to you that we start first by having a biblical perspective. And a biblical pr perspective uh, really reveals that folks like Miller and Mead are wasting a lot of their time and ours. The, from a biblical perspective, uh, folks like Miller and Mead are wasting a lot of their energy and ours. They're, they're causing a whole lot of ruckus and creating a whole lot of anxiety for nothing. Because from a biblical perspective, believers in Jesus are not to be concerned about the date of Jesus' coming, Rather, believers in Jesus are to be concerned with the fact that he is coming and to live in a way that is being prepared for the day of the Lord. 
And that's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Paul began to discuss Jesus' parousia, his second coming, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18, focusing on those believers in Jesus who have died before Jesus' return and, and what would happen with them. In our passage today from 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul shifts his focus to talk about those who are living and awaiting the day of the Lord. So if you've died a believer in Jesus, there is hope of resurrection. If you're still alive, waiting for Jesus to return, there is a specific way to live. And what does Paul say about the day of the Lord, the day of coming, the Jesus coming? He says this, don't get caught up in knowing when, get caught up in knowing Jesus and in being prepared. The day of the Lord has a very rich biblical background. In the pages of the Old Testament, especially in the writings of prophets such as Amos and Isaiah and Joel and Zechariah and Malachi, to name only a handful, the day of the Lord was that appointed moment in history, within human history, in which Yahweh would come to punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, as Isaiah states in chapter 13, verse 11. And at the same time, on that same day, at that same moment in history, Yahweh would come so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, as Joel states in chapter 2, verse 32 of his book. And so in the Old Testament, in, in the prophets, in the writings, and in the, the expectation of the believer of, of Jewish folks in Jesus' day, the, the day of the Lord is that day in which Yahweh will come to judge to execute his justice upon the evil, and to deliver salvation to the righteous. Nothing much changes in the New Testament. The only change is that Jesus becomes the focal point. In the pages of the New Testament, it is the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus who will return on the day of the Lord as the appointed judge. And when Jesus returns on the day of the Lord, his coming will bring judgment and justice and salvation. Evil will receive justice at the hands of Jesus, and the righteous will receive the finalization of their salvation. And Paul says something interesting here in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Now, why would Paul say that? I think Paul wrote this because he doesn't want the church to get caught up in attempts to pinpoint the time and dates of Jesus' coming. Rather, Paul wants the church to get caught up in knowing Jesus and in being prepared. If I can return to that example of David Mead that I used just a few minutes ago, Mead used some kind of code from the Bible and planetary charts to predict the end of the world. He ignored the fact that the same planetary alignment that he said would bring about the end of the world had already occurred four other times over the course of the last 1,000 years, and we're still here. And while he scoured the pages of Scripture looking for a code that would unlock the secrets to the end of all things, he ignored that which is plainly said by Jesus and plainly written by St. Matthew in chapter 24 of his gospel. Jesus says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, 
nor the Son, but the Father only. Any attempt, like Miller's, like Charles Taze Russell, like David Mead, any attempt like this to predict the second coming of Jesus, the day of the Lord, is an attempt to know better than Jesus himself. And something about that doesn't strike me well. Something about that is wrong to, to say that we can figure something out that Jesus doesn't know. Maybe I'm alone in that. I don't know. And see, the, the Paul's desire, and just like Jesus' desire before him, is not that people know the exact time and date for the day of the Lord, but that they may be prepared for it by knowing Jesus and living accordingly. And what happens if you know a date that's far in the future? You procrastinate until the very last moment, right? Right? College students, right? You get a syllabus at the beginning of the semester. You see that you have a 40-page paper due on December 1st. What do you do? You wait till Thanksgiving. <laughs> Jesus' desire and Paul's desire is that people not know the specific time, but rather they prepare for that time because they know the certainty of Jesus' return. In a weird way, attempts to pinpoint, prognosticate, and predict the, the return of Jesus actually diverts us away from Jesus himself. If we think we have time to fix things, then we're going to take all the time that we think we have. And Jesus will come as certain as his resurrection, as certain as his ascension, so is his return. Knowing that he will return, believers in Jesus then are to be prepared for his coming, the day of the Lord. Remember that uh, when Jesus says, concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only in Matthew 24, Jesus then begins to tell parables. So he begins to talk about his coming. And in his teaching, he says things like this, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He, he then tells parables. He, he tells the parables of the, the ten virgins. Five, they're all waiting for the bridegroom, but only five had prepared themselves for enough oil. He, he concludes by saying, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We just heard this morning this, this gospel parable about the, the talents and the servants. The master goes away. He entrusts the servants with things to do for his return. And those that have done nothing, those who are unprepared, are cast as worthless servants into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our Baptist brethren get a lot of bad press for hellfire and brimstone sermons. Uh, Jesus preached the original one, so people just need to get over it. You see, Jesus' concern is that people be prepared, and that's Paul's concern as well. As, 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 Jesus, as, as, as Paul discusses Jesus' coming, he's writing to these believers in Thessalonica, and he says, listen, humanity breaks down into two basic parts. There's two basic camps, the children of darkness and the children of the light. That's just the way it is. And for those who are in the darkness, Jesus' return means one thing. And for those who are in the light, Jesus' return means another thing. Darkness symbolizes that aspect of creation which is ignorant of God and, and ignorant of the Savior Jesus and is, is an open rebellion against God. In John chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus described those in darkness as everyone who does wicked things and as those who hate the light. 
Paul here in 1 Thessalonians describes them as being asleep or being drunk. They have, they're not alert. They're not, they're not ready. Their thinking is fuzzy. They're, they're not clear-headed. For these folks, for these folks who are in the darkness, these folks who do not know Jesus, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. They're convinced that they're fine. They're they're convinced they have peace and security. They're convinced that they have uh, self-determination and that are sufficient in themselves. They're convinced that they got time, and they are unprepared for Jesus. They'll be shocked when Jesus comes. They'll be shocked to find out that their self-made security was nothing but a hologram as they stand before the judge. And just like genuine labor leads to the birth of a child, so Jesus' coming leads to the unavoidable, ju- unavoidable judgment of dark as dark, evil as evil. But not for those who are of the light. In verse 4 of our passage from today, Paul writes, But you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. What's the difference between the two? What's the difference between these two camps of humanity? Jesus. That's it. Jesus is the difference. You see, if you skip to verse 9 in chapter 5, we read this. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. It's only by knowing Jesus, by trusting in him, by receiving forgiveness in his shed blood and life in his resurrection, that one can be a child of the light for whom the day of the Lord is not a surprise. And for whom the day of the Lord results not in judgment, not in punishment, not in being cast into the outer darkness where is weeping and gnashing of the teeth, but in the consummation of salvation, a reunion with the resurrected brothers and sisters in the very presence of the returned Christ, only because of Jesus. And so Paul's perspective here is don't get caught up in knowing the when, get caught up in knowing Jesus, the one who can save you when he comes. Know Jesus, Paul is saying, and receive the fullness of salvation with him when he comes. Don't be surprised. Be ready. When the day of the Lord dawns upon us and Jesus the King returns to judge the living and the dead, there will be two outcomes for the two camps. There will be judgment or salvation, all based upon whether one trusts in Jesus. And those who know Jesus are called to live a life of preparation. Those in darkness are those unprepared. They're asleep. They're drunk. Paul says that those who are in the light are to be prepared. They are to be awake, and they are to be sober-minded. And listen to what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 8. Since we belong to the day, right? So this is who you are. You're a child of the day, a child of the light. Now, since means live like it. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. A believer in Jesus, a a child of the light, is called to have a mind of clarity of thought and purpose, a mind of preparation and a life girded up with the armor that is faith, hope, and love. 
as armor is a necessary component to an ancient warrior's kit as he goes into battle, so the armor of faith, hope, and love is a necessary component to the character of Christians as they await the coming of the Lord. Faith, hope, and love. Live a life knowing Jesus, trusting in Him and His provision of salvation with a life marked by faith, hope, and love. We're called to live every day as if Jesus will return in the next hour, in the next minute. Believers in Jesus are called to be prepared. How do you go about being prepared? What are practical things that you can do? Well, the Sunday school answers are always the best answers, right? What did we hear this morning in our collect for the day about the scriptures? Read them. Inwardly digest them. Mark them and learn them. You want to be prepared for the coming of the Lord? Well, read your Bibles. We sing a song with the Noah's Ark uh, preschool kids in our chapel services. It's called, Read Your Bible and Pray Every Day. There you go. That's a good start for being prepared. The other thing is, or one of the other things is, is do what God has given you to do. In that parable from this morning, that parable of the talents, the master gave into the servant's hands things to use. His expectation was that they would use them while he was away. You want to be prepared for the day of the Lord? Don't sit on your thumbs when God has given you something to do. Read your Bible and pray every day and do that which God has given you to do. There's one more thing that we find in this passage itself. In this final verse of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, our passage for today, Paul concludes his discussion of the day of the Lord by saying this, Therefore, because of everything I've just said, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is a reference to body life. This is a reference to being connected to a wider church. This is a reference to being together. You want to be prepared for the day of the Lord? Be in your Bible. Be in prayer. Do what God has given you to do. Be a part of a local church. Early church father Chrysostom once noted, do you see how everywhere Paul puts the health of the community into the hands of each individual? The health of Emmanuel Anglican Church is dependent upon its constituent parts as we encourage one another. And the health of our constituent parts is dependent upon the health of the whole as we are encouraged by one another. There is mutual encouragement, mutual building up, and this strengthens us and this strengthens the church. That we are to encourage one another with the truth of the day of the Lord. I think there's two ways to encourage one another with the the truth of the day of the Lord. On the one hand, we can encourage one another with the truth of the day of the Lord, with the truth of Jesus coming, because in the midst of this life, we see all kinds of horrific events, all kinds of terrible things, all kinds of injustices. And we can remind one another that there is a day that is coming when true justice will be served. There's a day coming when Jesus will return, when he returns, all that is bad, all that is sad will be broken down and remade into gladness and happiness and joy. That's a good encouragement, I think. In the midst of our grief, we're supposed to encourage one another with the truth of the resurrection and reunion in the presence of the returned Christ. And in the midst of the living life in this dark world, we should encourage one another with the fact that the king is coming and he gets to have the last say. But there's another aspect of this as well. Sometimes when we live life together, we we see brothers and sisters who perhaps aren't quite living a life of being prepared as they should. 
And it's okay, I think, to encourage people to say, you know, the Lord is coming. Nudge, nudge. <laughs> Wake up. The Lord is coming. That's an aspect of encouragement. Because I think in encouragement, there's also an aspect of witness. Folks, the world may not like to hear that Jesus is coming, and the world may not like to hear that when he comes, he will judge, but that's true. And the truth, as Flannery O'Connor once said, truth is not changed by our ability or inability to stomach it. And so the truth is that Jesus is coming. And there's an aspect of encouraging witness in this. There's an aspect of saying, you've got to prepare. Children of the light are called by Jesus to be about making disciples. And this is to participate in God's rescue mission, to bring people out of the dark and into the light so that they're awake when Jesus comes, so that they too can receive salvation when Jesus comes. And children of the light cannot be content with their own status, but, but with desirous affection and with gentleness, children of the light are to called to be witnesses to the glory of Jesus, the Lord, the only Savior, the one who is coming. And this really should add a sense of urgency to our vision at Emmanuel, to glorify God by blessing people with gospel ministries that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building his kingdom that they may be ready when the king comes. There's two camps of people in this world, those in the dark and those in the light. Those in the light are called to be prepared for the day of the Lord by knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus with, with clear minds, with full hearts, with faith, hope, and love, prepared through Scripture and prayer, doing what we've been given to do, living life together as a church, may we be a beacon of light so that others may know Jesus and be prepared for His coming. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy and gracious God, we praise you and give you thanks.